Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, and the word of the Lord reads, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Augustine once wrote, wicked men obey from fear, good men from love. So again, welcome back to our series on the letter to the Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. Paul says that the gospel is the very power of God to save those who believe. And in Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul has been explaining how that is true. In the very first few chapters, Paul explains what the gospel is. It's the bad news of our sinful condition resulting in our alienation from God and his wrath upon us. But it's also the good news of what God, by his grace, has done in Christ Jesus to rescue us. After that, he explains the blessings the gospel gives to those who believe it, that we have peace with God, access to God's grace, a hope that can't be taken from us, and the love of God being poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And then he explains how the gospel works. How in the world can one man, Jesus Christ, live to make us righteous and then die to atone for our sins? Well, Paul explains that just as Adam was our representative or our federal head in the garden, Jesus is our new covenant representative. And by faith, we are united to him. He then, Paul explains, the freedom the gospel provides to those who believe from the law and from sin itself. And then Paul's letter rises to the summit as he unpacks for us the immutable hope that all believers, because they have faith in Christ, are safe in the hands of God. And the promise of the gospel is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there is no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then right after that, Paul explains the reason for our security and hope is because of the faithfulness, not of us, but because the faithfulness of God and his sovereignty. God is faithful to his people, his elect in all ages, and God completely sovereignly ordains both the means and the ends for us to come to faith. And because of that, then we can live confidently on mission taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, trusting that God will, trusting that God's will and plan for his people will be accomplished. And that is why we say our job then as believers is very simple. We are to sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change hearts, and then never give up. It's just that simple. We sow the seed of God's word. We love the people 
with our actions and our attitudes, and we pray for God to do what only God can do, which is change hearts, and we never give up. That is the power of the gospel to save those who believe. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 1 through 11. But then we, as we move through Romans 12 through 16, Paul gets very practical and begins to tell us how we are to live now in light of that. How do we live now that we've been born again in light of the power of the gospel? Beginning in chapter 12, Paul reminds us that because of the gospel, we have been restored in our relationship with God. And because of that, we ought to live like it. We ought to live our lives in light of God's mercy as a living sacrifice, not allowing ourselves to be shaped by the world or literally the age around us. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word, we are to be transformed from the inside out by by the renewal of our minds and seeking to live a life that pleases him. And the manifestation of that or the fruit of that life lived for God is how we live before the rest of the world, how we live and treat our fellow man. You see, because of the transforming power of the gospel, we are empowered to live radically different lives towards our neighbors, towards literally everyone else. And Paul has been unpacking for us what that looks like. Beginning with the family of God, Paul explains that that we who belong to the family of God ought to live humbly, submitted to one another, loving each other with the sacrificial love, serving one another, and recognizing that we are a family. And because of that, we are a part of one another's lives. What happens to you happens to me. Paul then moves on to explain how we live this transformed life with those who are not part of God's family especially toward those who are hostile toward us and, and even those who are hostile to the God that we serve. And Paul tells us that we're to live in harmony with everyone around us, that we are to seek to live at peace, even with those who are really hard to be around, that we are to bless and be good to people, even our enemies, and that we are to trust in God's justice and we're to be compassionate to everyone not just the people we like. And so Paul says, in light of the gospel, we're to live out this radical new life in a way that honors God before all people, including those who love us back and even those who would hate our guts. Paul, in essence, is saying, in light of the gospel, be a good neighbor. And then he says, if that weren't enough, be a good citizen by living in submission to those in authority over you. All of those that are in authority over you. Because God ultimately is the author of authority, and out of respect for him, live your life visibly submitted to those in authority that God has placed in your life, be it the federal government or the state government or your teacher or your employer or your minister. The idea that holds all this together, by the way, because this is not easy for us. The idea that holds this all together is love. The supernatural love that flows from the Holy Spirit into our hearts, pouring out onto the rest of the world. And as we talked about last week, this love is a debt that we owe to the world. It's a debt that we can never fully pay, but it's a debt we owe to everyone. And and more than that, it's the fulfillment of the law. It's how we 
fulfill the law. And this love also said, Paul said, does no harm to its neighbors. It does good. And so to this point, Paul has unpacked for us the power of the gospel, and he told us how to live in light of the gospel, which is to be a good neighbor and a good citizen. And in this text before us, Paul is going to explain for us the heart of the reason why we are to live this way. So turn with me to Romans 13, and we're going to begin looking again at verse 11. And Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, one of the difficulties I think that we have with this text is the fact that Paul, what he has just said, is actually connected to what he is about to say. But the problem is, in this translation, this connection isn't really quite so clear. This expression in English, besides that, really doesn't do a good job of communicating or explaining what Paul is trying to get across to us here. And the reason for that is because the underlying Greek that Paul is using here literally translates as, and this, knowing the time. That's what it literally says, and this, knowing the time. Right? That the hour has come for you to wake. This expression that Paul uses here in the Greek can be a bit confusing. But the good news for us is Paul has used this expression elsewhere in the New Testament in his letters And because of that and the context, what Paul really is saying here can be better translated as the New American Standard Bible translated, which which renders it this way. Do this knowing the time. Do this knowing the time. You see, Paul isn't just saying that you need to know something. Paul is saying you need to do something because you know something. Paul says, right, he's not just saying you you know the time. He's saying you need to do something because you know the time, which then leads to two questions. What is it that we're to do? And what about time that we are supposed to already know? Well, with respect to what we are to do, Paul actually has just explained it. In verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. That's what he has just spent time unpacking. Owe no one anything except to love each other. This is the thing that Paul has said that we are to do. It is to love with his radical new love. And that's what he's been explaining from the beginning of chapter 12. We are to love God supremely and we're to love all other people, including our church family, which should be easy to love but even loving our enemies. That's what we're to do. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, and not simply with an emotional sense of the word love, but in the action sense. We're to demonstrate that love by doing right by others, by being submissive to authority, by living at peace with other people, by sacrificing and taking care of those in need. That's why Paul says, that's what he says that we are to do. Paul says we are to love with this radical new love, knowing the time. But what does Paul mean here by the fact that you know the time? Well, first of all, notice Paul doesn't say, doesn't have to teach them what the time is. He says you know it. 
He's never even met the Romans, but he says, you know them. If you're a Christian, you know the time. You're aware of the time. And then he says three things that gets at the heart of what he's talking about with respect to time. He says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Number one. Number two, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And number three, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. Obviously, he's talking about something impending, something near. In light of this, you know the time. If you're the Christian, you know the time you live in. Now, obviously, Paul ultimately is pointing at the eschaton or or the time when Christ returns and finishes or consummates his redemptive work. Or as so many people say popularly, the end times. Now, I personally have kind of developed an aversion to the expression end times because so many people, when they see that expression, they miss the point. And all they think about is cataclysms and gigantic battles and the end of the world rather than the purpose to which those things ultimately serve. Which, by the way, is Christ's final victorious return, his consummation of his, his, his redemptive work when God finally finishes his work and we are glorified with him. That's what Paul is pointing to, the day of our final salvation. In fact, the salvation that Paul talks about here when he says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed is just that, our glorification. That's what he's referring to. The thing that we need to keep in mind and remember is salvation has a past, present tense, and future tense sense to it. We have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are irrevocably saved. You were justified once and for all by grace through faith. And it is permanent and eternal, and you were saved from the penalty of sin. It is a settled reality. It has been done, and you can rest in that and trust in Christ all the days of your life. It's a once and final pronouncement, judgment, declaration of God. You have been justified. But once you've been justified, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And then something begins to happen. And he begins to change you from the inside out. Those of us who are in Christ are presently in this moment are being sanctified. We're not perfect yet. This is the ongoing process throughout the rest of our lives. We're being saved presently from the power of sin. This is the Holy Spirit changing us little by little, convicting us, leading us, guiding us, conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. This is how we grow in holiness. We are being saved. But then there will be the day when we will finally be completely and totally saved, when we are resurrected in our new bodies and we will live forever in the presence of God, where we'll be saved from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. That's the future sense of salvation. This is where there is no more pain and no more sorrows and temptation or, or failings or cancer or death. This is the salvation that we are all, every one of us, looking forward to. 
This is the salvation that Paul's talking about here. That's what he's pointing us to. This is the time that we're waiting on. This is the time that is drawing nearer. And so Paul certainly has Christ's return in mind here. But there's more here than just the end of the times. In fact, the way I've heard some preach this in the past many times goes like this. The end times are about to come and Jesus is about to come back. So you better walk in the light and not in darkness. He's about to come back. So you better start doing good stuff and stop that sinning. Right? Because Jesus is about to come back. And if he finds you doing something you're not supposed to do, then you're really going to be in trouble. You better start living right when Jesus comes back is the message I've heard so many times in my life. And brothers and sisters, that is not the message that Paul is preaching here. Paul is not saying you you know that the end is near, so you better get on your best behavior just in case Jesus finds you doing something stupid when he comes. Let me just tell you something. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he knows all things, and he already knows the stupid things you're doing. Can we just agree on that? And by the way, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. So that's not the message. right? First of all, the reason why it's not the message is because that is just good old-fashioned legalism. It's all that it is. If you don't do this, and if you don't do that, and if you do this, and when Jesus comes, you won't be saved. That's the essence of that kind of preaching. It's just good old-fashioned legalism that doesn't save anybody. But what is the truth then that we affirm as Christians? We are saved by what? By grace, through faith in Christ alone. It is a gift of God, so no no one may boast. Salvation is by grace and not from works of the law. And guess where we learned that from? From Paul, right? And so Paul is not saying you better start doing the right thing when Christ returns, otherwise you're done for. That's not what he's saying here. And secondly, remember what Paul just said. Do this knowing the time. What are we to do? Love other people. Love our neighbor. You see, what Paul is saying here isn't even really about us. It's about the world around us. It's about the people around us. Paul is saying, knowing the time, we need to love those people around us. Let me say that again. Knowing the time. Now more than ever, we need to love all of those people around us, even the ones that are really, really stinking hard to love. You see, Paul is pointing us to the hope that we long for on the horizon, but then he also points us to the people who are immediately around us. And and the truth is that many of the people around us are not ready for Christ to come back. That's what he's pointing us to, the reality of Christ's imminent return and a world of people who are not prepared to meet him. That's why Paul says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when you first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Paul is saying, now's the time, Christian. Get up! to wake up from your sleep, to get up out of that bed and get ready and get dressed. In fact, Paul's going to say, put on the armor of light. And then he's going to say, put on 
Christ as if he's clothing. You see, the point of getting up and getting ready is because there's work to do. There's a battle to be fought. There's a dawn coming, and there are people out here who are not ready for the dawn. This isn't a call for Christians to make sure that they are doing all the right things just in case Jesus comes back and they're not embarrassed. This is a call to get up and shine the light of Christ because the dawn is coming, and there are many people who are not ready to meet him. You see, Paul is pointing to the end, but he's also pointing to now. Because we as Christians live in the overlap. The overlap of the already but not yet. The overlap of Christ's reign and ruling, but also the overlap of a world not fully subdued yet. We live in the intersection of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We live in this world, but we're not of this world. We're already part of God's kingdom here and now. Remember, Jesus said, the time is now and the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. We who believe have crossed over from death to life, from darkness into light, from Adam into Christ. We are a new creation, yet we still have these old decaying bodies. We live now in this kingdom. We live in this intersection of already but not yet. And we're now standing at the precipice of the dawn. We can see our hope on the horizon and we see our final salvations at hand just as Paul could see it then. We can see the hope that we long for. That glorious day when there isn't any more war or strife or pain, or divorce, or anxiety. The day when we would hear the words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That is the hope that we long for so desperately. And if you're in Christ, you can see that on the horizon, and we yearn for it. And and the call isn't for us to go back to sleep and then just wait for that. The call isn't just lay back down and hit the snooze button until the sun finally comes up. The call is to wake up, get up, and get ready and go to work. That's the call because the night is far gone and the day is at hand. Again, we might be ready for the dawn. But there are a lot of people around you in your life and in your circles who were not. We all have friends and family members who have not met Christ and they're not ready to meet him when he comes. We have people in our lives who are still covered in their sins with no atonement and no hope. The wrath of God still abides on them. And if Christ came now in this moment... We would rejoice, but they would be lost. Do you understand that? If Christ came now and fulfilled our hope, they would be consigned to their doom and be lost forever. That's why we live in this tension. I want, I yearn for, I pray for Jesus to come back. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I want to to be with him. I want to to live a life that's not buffeted by sin. I want to be 
free from my flesh. I want to be free from the worries that I carry. I want to be free from the pain in my bones. I want to be free from sin's influence on my life. I want Jesus to come back and take me home. He is my treasure. (laughs) But I want him to wait long enough for my family members to come to faith first. I want all my grandkids to come to faith. I want my sister, who I don't get to talk to a whole lot, to come to faith. I want my middle daughter, who has just completely rejected Christ, to come to faith. I want my friends that I know and love in this community who are just precious people to come to faith before Christ comes back. You see, this isn't a call to sit idly by waiting for the return of Christ. It's a call to get up and get ready and go to work. That's why Paul says, so then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, this language is is telling us that this is a reference to changing clothing, be it spiritual clothing. This is a language that he's using. He's saying, change your outward adornment. What, What people see, change what you wear that other people see. You need to cast off the night clothes, those bed clothes, and put on your work clothes. Put on that uniform so people know who you are. You need to take off the clothes that we used to wear when we lived in the kingdom of darkness. We need to put on the work clothes of the kingdom of light so people understand who Christ is and who we are. And notice that we're to put on those and adorn the armor of light. You see, the Christian life isn't about sitting back and resting and waiting for the sun to come up. The Christian life is about getting up and getting ready and getting into the fight, into battle. We put on armor of light for two reasons. First, to protect us so that we, so that we can stand our ground. Second, so that those around us can identify us. One of the things that happens to my oldest son every time that he is out somewhere in his uniform is people know exactly who he is with and what he is about. And even those who know a little bit about something, when they see all those ribbons and badges, know exactly what he's done and how many times he's been overseas. That's the idea of the uniform of light that we wear, is that we will be identified and known for the king that we serve. And then in light of that, Paul says, let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, in sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. Paul now explicitly calls us to put on the armor of light and then walk or to live rightly in the light. This is a call to live in holiness. This is a call to live in obedience to God's commands. And he specifically calls us to live self-controlled and to put off sexual immorality and drunkenness and social sin. He calls us to put off the sins that seems to haunt all of mankind even today. Sexual sin, drunkenness, conflict and strife. The very things that seem to define humanity right now. Which, by the way, ought to tell us something about the nature of mankind. People today look around and they see how sinful people are and they think... We must be near the end because people are so depraved and mean and sinful. Look how they treat one another. Brothers and sisters, 
people have always been that depraved. Right? People have always been sinful and mean and sexually immoral. The rampant sexual immorality of the Roman Empire is every bit as widespread and was every bit as licentious and every bit as perverted as it's today. The fact is we're just more connected and we can see it more. Right? In fact, people treated each other worse in many respects during that time. There wasn't near as much freedom and there weren't near as many laws by the grace of God that, that restricted that. But one of the problems that people have today is they don't understand history and they view the Bible and everything around them from their own context. But the truth is people have been living and reveling in the dark from the beginning. The sinfulness of mankind has been on display since the fall. And so rampant sin is nothing new. What is new, though, historically speaking, what is new is those who have been set free in Christ. They are now part of the kingdom of light, and they are being called upon to get up and get ready and get dressed and go out and shine that light. And how do we shine the light? We do that by walking in obedience to God's commands and pursuing holiness before the world. Just stop and think about that for a second. Why does Paul say it this way, though? Why, Why this? Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, and quarreling and jealousy. Why is Paul saying this to born-again believers? It should be kind of automatic, wouldn't you think? All right. Is he saying this is a command for your salvation? Is he saying that you better be obedient and never sin so that you can be saved? Is he saying that you better not be sinning just in case Jesus comes back? I mean, if that's what he's saying, then why would he go through the whole charade again of saying that you're saved apart from the works of the law and stressing the fact that we've been saved through grace, by grace through faith? What we need to understand is what Paul is saying and why he's saying it. He began this section by calling us to do something, and that is to love our neighbors, to love those around us. And he now says, be obedient to God's command and walk properly in the light, not as in the darkness and in sin. You see, he's not saying this for our salvation because we are saved by grace through faith. So then why is he saying this to us? Why is he telling us to live this way? He's saying that because this is how we love our neighbors. You see, we obey God's command, not out of compulsion or fear. We obey them out of love for God and out of love for our fellow man. Again, Augustine said it very well. He said, wicked men obey from fear, good men from love. You see, Paul isn't saying you better obey just in case Jesus comes back and finds you doing something wrong. Paul is saying, walk in the light so that those around you can see the light and come to the light before the dawn and can be saved. That's how you love your neighbor, as you shine the light for them. Remember what did Jesus say in Matthew? You are what? The light of the world. These words aren't incidental. You are the light of the world And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your, what? Light shine before others so that they may see your good works, right? Your obedience, 
right? Your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. What Paul is saying is we need to walk in love, and the way to do that in light of the coming dawn is to get up and get to work shining the light in the darkness. And the way that you do that is to put off the way that you used to walk in the darkness and begin to walk in the obedience of the light. Not so that you can be saved, but so that in so that we, in our love, can show others the way. That's why Paul is saying the time is short, and there are many around us who were not in the kingdom. And, and the way to help them find the kingdom is for us individually, in our own little worlds, in our own little lives, is to shine the light of the kingdom. And we do that. You don't have to stand on the corner with a sandwich board, but we do that by being good citizens, by being good neighbors, by paying our taxes, by being outwardly, visibly obedient to God and his commands. That's how we love them. That's how we love them. We love our neighbors by not sinning against them and by living as an example for them and sharing with them the hope of Christ. But again, that seems like a lot. So how do we do that? I mean, how do we live this obedient life? I mean, it just seems so difficult that we're, since we're buffeted by sin and temptation. I mean, even Paul in Romans chapter 7 talked about how he doesn't do the things he wants to do and does the things he doesn't want to do. How do we, how do we live in light of this obedience? Well, he gives us the prescription for that too. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're to put on Christ and put off the flesh. Now, this isn't simply a matter of changing our physical clothing. It's a matter of changing our mindsets. And the idea that Paul is communicating here is we need to change what we set our minds on. Paul's prescription for us is to live this way, right? That he's calling us to live and the way that we do that is to saturate our minds with Christ and the things of Christ to the point that we're covered up in him. By the way, that's why the worship service is all about him. That's why we pray. That's why we sing the songs we sing. That's why we preach from the word of God. Right? We're trying to saturate our minds with Christ. The idea is to be so completely covered in Christ and all that we think and do that we don't make provision for our flesh. That way we're not giving thought to the temptations that come to us. By the way, nobody falls into sin. It is a seed that's planted in our minds that we act on and we pursue. The idea is we saturate our minds with Christ, that we don't make room for those things. We saturate our minds in the word and with worship and with fellowship and service and make no room for the flesh. In other words, we set our minds on the things of God and we keep them there. Or as Paul has already said, be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so this is the call to be saturated in the gospel and the power of the gospel. So with that, then what do we, what do, we do with this in our own lives? Well, the first thing is always is repent and believe the gospel. If you're somebody who's not come to faith in Christ, if you're not, if you're somebody who's never actually, you know, really understood who you were in light of God's holiness, maybe you maybe 
prayed a prayer at some point, or maybe like at VBS, you you thought you had like you know made Jesus your Lord, but you know you realize your life doesn't reflect that. Right? The time is to turn to Jesus in faith and trust in Him and Him alone. And the gospel is just simply the truth of who God is. God is the glorious, holy, righteous creator of all things, and he created you special for a relationship with him. But because of sin, that relationship has been severed. And not only are you just severed from God in that relationship, you are an enemy of God under his wrath and condemnation, and there will come a time that all sinners will face God's judgment, and he will give them what they rightly deserve which is an eternity in torment called hell. It is a reality, it is a truth that people don't want to hear about, but it's the truth that people need to hear. Those in their sin will meet a wrathful God. That's the bad news. And, and to make it worse, is not anything you could do to fix it. You can't be good enough. You can't obey enough rules. You can't be smart enough, compassionate enough, loving enough. It is not about what you can do for God. And so what happens is you have to come to that place where you understand you're helpless and hopeless all on your own. But then comes the good news that God, by the counsel of his own will, by his grace, by his own design, decided to have mercy on you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the perfect righteous life that you should have lived, but you can't. And then he died in your place to make atonement for your sin, paying all of your sin, past, present, and future, and then he rose again, proving that that debt had been completely paid. And the call for you is simply this, is to turn to him and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Throw all of your hope and trust on him and him alone, and the promise is you will be saved. That's always the first thing. If you're not in Christ, come to him. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. The second thing is, if you're in Christ... Brothers and sisters, rest your weary heads on the power of the gospel. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what he's already done for you. And when you fail today, guess what? That's not enough to disqualify you. Right? I've given God a million and one reasons to reject me, and he hasn't taken me up on it yet. Why? Because salvation is not about what I can do for him. It's what he's done for me. So rest in that. Hold on to that. Trust in that. Believe that. And then finally then, rescue the lost. This is the part where we then begin to love our neighbors by walking in holiness. I don't want to dishonor God in front of my neighbors. That's why I don't want to sin. I don't want to give that alcoholic an, an excuse to keep living the way that he does. That's why I try to live differently in front of him. I don't want to be a stumbling block before anyone. I want to live a life that points people to God and to Christ and the freedom that they have in him. That's how we love them. And that's the call that Paul has here for us. It's not about legalism. It is about the love that we have for our neighbors. There are people out there that are hurting and broken who have no other hope but Christ. And they're being told that your hope is the government, your hope is money, your hope is being more popular, your hope is in social media, your hope is in people liking you. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's just a temporary band-aid. There is only but one hope that people have, and there's only one place to get true freedom, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, that's the light you carry with you. So go out into the world and love your neighbor. Sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change hearts. Never give up.
You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.